Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, -face. and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends who can't watch Heart of the Matter on television, they can go to www.hotm.tv and watch it from anywhere in the world. We welcome all of our YouTube viewers, our uh, archive viewers, our uh, internet streaming viewers, and of course, the audience here and the audience uh, in the television world. I was a born-again Mormon. We made this manuscript available for you on PDF download free by going to the same site at hotm.tv, and you can get that in your hands within minutes. How about joining a weekly verse-by-verse non-denominational, never-denominational Bible study. We hold those at the campuses uh, up here in Utah, Utah State on Sunday afternoon, uh, University of Utah on Sunday afternoon as well. You can go to www.calvarycampus.com and get more information on that. Well, Heart of the Matter fans, this coming Tuesday, January 27th, God willing, we will be airing our 200th program. We have uh, missed twice, one from a family emergency and once from a power outage. Praise God. We thank you for the role that you have played in keeping the program going. Some of you have been with us from the start. Some of you just joined us last week. You've put us on your prayer list. You've supported us financially. You told your family and friends about the ministry. And we have seen exponential worldwide growth that's ongoing and growing into a great harvest. Literally millions of people have tuned in in one way or another. Tens of thousands have made personal decisions to seek out Jesus Christ and their relationship uh, with him. And based on what we have through emails, we know that hundreds and hundreds have come to uh, know the Lord personally and have walked away from Mormonism. In celebration of what the Lord has done, uh, this next week, Tuesday, January 25th, right here at our studio. Please join us for our 200th show. Afterward, we're going to go back to Squatter's Pub, which is in downtown Salt Lake City, and we're going to do something called Pastor in the Pub. Those of you who've watched the show for years know we used to go to a pub after the show and meet with everybody and talk to them about Mormonism and the Lord and the show and whatever else. So we're going to do that again as a re reunion next week after the program. Uh, the 27th. So join us, bring your family and friends. Uh, no assassins. We used to always say that. And uh, come and join us. That's uh, on Squatter's Pub. It's on 3rd and around Main in downtown Salt Lake City. And with that, let's have a prayer. Lord, we uh, need you in our lives in all areas, no matter what we are or what we're doing, we need you. So we pray for you specifically now for the program. We pray for our audience, uh, whoever may be watching and wherever. We pray for our staff, our volunteers, our technicians, and everything it takes to uh, send this out over the television. Lord, we thank you and love you and pray that eyes will open, hearts will feel, and people will be converted uh, to a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Central to the LDS teaching that Mormonism is the only true church on the face of the earth is their faulty idea that a restoration of the primitive church of Jesus Christ had to occur because the church Jesus established fell into a complete worldwide state of apostasy. Everything the LDS do and believe grows up and out of this false teaching that Mormonism is Jesus' restored church.
The Bible teaches two things very plainly about his church relative to this idea. First, it teaches that there would be and that there will continue to be ugly but partial apostasies and fallings away within the body of Christ and throughout its history. Second, the Bible teaches that the church Jesus established would wholly win against any and all of these apostasies, and even the gates of hell could not and would not prevail against it ever. Where Christians know Jesus established his church and gospel, and that while it might struggle, it would continue on, Mormons believe Jesus' work was doomed, and that a man named Joseph Smith had to come along and restore it back to the earth. The topic of apostasy is made all the more difficult due to the LDS claim of a non-existent priesthood and its authority also being lost along with the church Jesus established and so that this priesthood needed to be restored. And this is absolutely counter to what the Bible says in Hebrews about priesthood, Melchizedek or Aaronic. But because of time constraints, however, we're going to talk specifically about the LDS notion of a complete worldwide apostasy of the church Jesus established. And then we'll discuss the fallacious arguments about priesthood around September of this year, because that's when we're going to hit the P's. Um, listen to what some LDS leaders have said about this issue of apostasy. Speaking of the worldwide apostasy, President Heber J. Grant, eighth president of the church, said, as time passed, Dissensions occurred in the primitive church. The laws governing the church established by the Redeemer were transgressed. The ordinances were changed and everlasting covenant was broken. Men began to teach for doctrine their own commandments. A form of worship had been established which was called Christianity, but was without the power of God which characterized the primitive church. Spiritual darkness covered the earth and gross darkness the minds of the people. Uh, 10th President Joseph Fielding Smith said, quote, religious denominations relied entirely on the dead letter of the Bible for their authority. They closed the heavens against themselves and their interpretations of scripture without divine guidance led, to in, led them into divisions, subdivisions, and multiplication of churches, each going its own way blindly and in confusion. Speaking of Mormonism, 12th president of the church, Spencer W. Kimball, said, This is not a continuous church, nor is it one that has been reformed or redeemed. It has been restored after it was lost. It was lost, the gospel with its powers and blessings, sometime after the Savior's crucifixion and the loss of his apostles. The laws were changed, the ordinances were changed, the everlasting covenant was broken that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to his people in those days. There was a long period of centuries when the gospel was not available to people on the earth. 15th President Gordon B. Hinckley said, the prophet Joseph was told that other sects were wrong. These are not my words, he said. Those are the Lord's words, but they are hard words for those of other faiths to hear. Remember now, the Latter-day Saints strongly refute the idea that Joseph Smith merely reformed the church, but say that he actually had to restore it because it had totally lost all power, priesthood authority, uh, whatever else. Their own history of the church states, quote, nothing less 
than a complete apostasy from the Christian religion would warrant the establishment of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There was no possible excuse for the introduction of a new Christian sect. Since God supposedly told Joseph that all the churches were wrong, that all the Christian creeds on earth were an abomination to him, and that all the Christian professors of faith were corrupt, the LDS have taken this message uh, and laid it out on the world with a vengeance. Brigham Young said, quote, the Christian world, so-called, are heathens as far as their knowledge of the salvation of God. McConkie said, quote, Mormons have the only pure and perfect Christianity on earth. All other systems of religion are false, end quote. Negative statements and beliefs about Christians and Christianity abound and have abounded in Mormonism from the pen of its founder to the mouths of 60,000 plus missionaries out there today to discussions that privately occur within the LDS wards around the world. But, oh no, we love everybody. We never attack anybody else. We love all other faiths, right? I would be negligent in our examination of apostasy if we did not look at some of the pre-existing factors that were there before Joseph Smith was even born and before he restored, supposedly restored this church back in 1830. Consider these factors when you try to understand what the man did and said and why. Before Joseph Smith was born in the winter of 1805, the foundation for Mormonism was already well established by his paternal grandfather and his own father. His grandfather, whose name was Asael, was extremely opinionated on the subject of religion and looked for the day when the, quote, primitive church would be restored back to the earth. Joseph Smith's own father ardently refused refused to ever join any religion because he felt they were all wrong and the true one needed to be restored before he would become a member. Additionally, the Smith patriarchs believed two very important things relative to Joseph Smith's life and his ultimate purpose. First, they believed that America was chosen by God as a land of liberty and that this church of Jesus Christ would someday be restored on this continent. It completely discounted what the Bible says about Israel, Jerusalem, Zion, all of that, and it brought it all to America. Now, the Smith patriarchs were not alone in their beliefs. There was a whole bunch of men and women around at that time who were known as restorationists or primitivists, and they too were looking for the original church of Jesus Christ to be restored back to the earth. In all probability and honestly, this was probably because the body of Christ was going through a real ugly adolescent period, and as it is wont to do, and it probably um, brought people to look for a more genuine religious experience. I can see that in this day and age. But the whole of Christianity was not affected ever. 
This environment is one reason why at that time of Joseph Smith, a whole bunch of self-proclaimed prophets were popping up and saying they've received revelations on how to bring back the true church, including William Taz Russell, Ellen G. White, Mary Baker Eddy, uh, uh, Joseph Smith Jr. They all came out around the same time saying, we've got what the true thing is about. LDS author Richard L. Bushman and Joseph Smith in the beginnings of Mormonism stated that early Mormonism was even known as a Campbellite sect, a name taken from Joseph Campbell, who was a very early restorationist or primitivist that was around at that time. The second things the Smith patriarchs believed, even before Joseph was born, was that this restored church was going to come through their family. And George Q. Cannon, an apostle of the church, writes in his book, Life of Joseph Smith the Prophet, that Joseph Smith's grandfather, Assail, said, It has been borne upon my soul that one of my descendants will promulgate a work to revolutionize the world of religious faith. End quote. History proves then that from a very young age, even before his birth, birth, Joseph Smith Jr. was taught, one, that the primitive religion of Jesus had been taken from the earth, meaning that the gates of hell did prevail against it, that America was set apart as the place for this new gospel to come, and that Joseph Smith would, uh, in fact, be the one to restore this true religion to the earth. With this soil under his feet, Joseph Smith was primed for founding a new religion almost from birth. Now listen, everything about Mormonism, the angelic visits, the Book of Mormon, the new revelations, the twists, and its strong attraction to people who were seeking a new religion, this was all the fruit of the notion that Mormonism was truly the restored Christian church. Very quickly, Joseph Smith sensed the liberty that came with being this restorationist, and he began to take advantage of the people uh, that the people had in his visions. And so in time, he he grew more and more aggressive in his assertions that what he was actually practicing was part of the restored gospel, culminating in the fact that by the end of his life, he thought nothing of taking dozens and dozens of secret wives, of including his own name into the book of Genesis chapter 50 and of even having himself ordained king of the world. These are facts about the prophet Joseph Smith. And yet today, millions still sing praise to the man. LDS missionaries used the Bible to mislead unsuspecting and unlearned people on the idea that the church Jesus established failed and was indeed restored by Joseph Smith. There are several key verses uh, they use out of context, of course, and let me just cover them really quickly. I don't have a, a mic clock. I don't know what time it is. Anyone tell me? 14. 14? Into the show? Okay. Uh, Acts 3, 20 through 21. Uh, this talks about Uh, And he shall send Jesus Christ, which was preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive, it says, until the times of restitution of all things. And bottom line, the central message of this passage, Acts 3, 20 through 21, if you're taking notes, is central to all the prophets of the Old Testament was the teaching that Israel would would receive a restoration. This passage in Acts is talking about Israel receiving the restorations that the prophets had talked about the whole time. 
uh, in Acts uh, 20, verse 29 through 31, it says, For I know this, that after my departing, grievous wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things and drawing away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Again, the context is what? Were there false prophets that came into the early church? Absolutely. It came with Arminianism. It came with uh, Gnosticism. It came with all sorts of heresies that came in. The gates of hell have tried to kill Christianity, but it doesn't mean that this was a worldwide apostasy. Interestingly enough, the LDS used Galatians 1.8 when Paul says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you to the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Paul says, and some of the LDS will say, see, another gospel came in and this whole, the truth was lost. But this just implies that, that there was, um, it was a worldwide apostasy again. This was Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I mean, to the Galatians. And it was just a localized problem that they were having. Absolutely, they had it. One of the biggies the LDS used in scripture is found in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Paul writes, let no man deceive you by any means, means. For that day shall not come, except there comes a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. LDS missionaries go through and they tell people, we want to tell you that there was a there was supposed to be an apostasy and a falling away before Jesus comes. And they have you read, let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come. Jesus will not come except there comes a falling away first. And then they teach about this apostasy and say that was the falling away. Respected LDS apostles like James Talmadge have taken this passage and literally embarrassingly butchered it and took it and and have taken it out of context and misapplied all kinds of meaning into it. Bottom line, this passage in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 is an end time prophecy. And it speaks of a specific, even in the Greek, of a specific time when this apostasy will occur. If you read it in context, all you need to do is read the next verse because it's talking about this this son of perdition coming, who is the Antichrist. And then it goes on and says, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called of God And that is worshiped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is a prophetic utterance of an end time when there will be an apostasy, but Jesus won't come back until this antichrist shows his head. The mission, you sit down with any LDS missionary and you listen to them and they will use this passage to completely try to sway you that there was a worldwide apostasy when it has nothing at all to do with it. First Timothy four, one through two, another one that uh, speaks about, some falling away, it says, from the faith. Not all, but some. In addition to clarifying the twists the LDS have done on a number of these passages, there are a number of other valid, contradictory uh, points that you can make, make to them when they talk about a worldwide apostasy. First, I want to challenge you to think rationally, okay? Why would Jesus come to earth, teach and train his apostles as first-hand witnesses of all he said and did and taught, tell them to go forth in all the nations of the world, let them be martyred for their testimony, only to have it all lost. What's, what, what kind of God is this? That his own son comes and does this, the apostles give their life for it, they go out into the world just because it's going to all fall away to 
complete darkness, like the LDS want you to believe. And why would God allow the church to fall into complete apostasy after his only begotten son established it, only then to completely protect it from apostasy because a guy named Joseph Smith restored it? Does that make any sense to you? Jesus' church, it fell into apostasy because God couldn't control it at that time. But when Joseph restored it, my goodness, Thomas Monson, he would never be an apostate. We can trust that church completely. Where's the thinking in that? It's man-made idiocy, I'm telling you. Then what about the fact that God has always had a remnant people in, uh, on earth? In the book, The Bloodline of the Church, the author lays out a profound lineage of solid believers who have existed through thick and thin from the apostolic age, through their martyrdoms and death, through all the uh, horrible uh, uh, revolts, dark ages, governmental influences, and doctrinal disputations. There is a line, a thread of believers who have been on the earth. God has always had a principle of remnant in his divine work. And then how about uh, statements from scripture itself? Jesus said to Peter, of course, I will build my church uh, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said to his followers, lo, I am with you always even until the end of the world. He promised that when two or three were gathered together in his name, that he would be in the midst of them, okay? In Ephesians 3.21, Paul says, unto him be the glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout the ages, it says. Glory of Jesus Christ throughout the ages, worlds without end. How could God be glorified throughout the ages if the church his son established on earth fell apart into complete apostasy? Ephesians 4 describes the church Jesus established as growing and maturing in spiritual uh, 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 maturity and not declining into spiritual uh, degeneracy. Explain that to me. The apostle Peter said, the word of the Lord endures forever. And he adds, and this is the word which we, uh, which by the gospel is preached to you. He says, we're preaching to you this gospel and this gospel, this word endures forever. The writer of Hebrews wrote, we've received a kingdom which cannot be moved. Those are the words of the writer of Hebrews. Then finally, one last trick, and then we're going to go to the phones, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. The book of Revelation is a remarkable defense against the LDS view that there was a worldwide apostasy, and let me tell you why. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gives the revelation to John himself, and he says to John the Beloved, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and he asks John, he says, what do you see? Write in a book and send it into the seven churches which are in Asia. These are the seven churches, unto Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Well, let me teach you something. Those seven churches were real churches that existed in Asia. And Christ said to John, write this and send it out to those seven churches. Those seven churches also symbolically represent seven epochs or period of time of the church growth over from the time Jesus established it to the very end days, okay? And when you read that, you can see that he goes on to describe the, the periods of great trial the church has gone through. Let me tell you how awesome the word of God is by going through this. The first church, it's Ephesus, right? Ephesus means full-purposed or desirable. This was the church early on before corruption started to come in and make things very difficult. Ephesus is a picture of the first 
years of the early church before the persecutions began. Then we have the church of Smyrna, okay? Smyrna speaks of bitterness and suffering. And this pictures the period of time in the Christian history when Rome came in and started killing Christians and sacrificing them and uh, burning them at the stake. The next uh, church is called Pergamos. This was a very bad time for the church. And that word Pergamos, you know what it means? It means mixed marriage. And what that epoch of time represents in, in Revelation is the time when the church was existing and Constantine came in and said, look it, everybody must be a Christian. And so he forced it as like a national religion. And so we had a bunch of people who really weren't believers becoming Christian, this mixed marriage, and it ended up in a disastrous effect. Were there still believers on earth, true believers on earth at that time? Absolutely there were. The gates of hell didn't uh, uh, go against it, but the church was married to a very worldly church at that time. The next church around AD 500, it's called Thyatira. That word means continual sacrifice. So the church, what it was saying is the church fell into this period of time where they believed they had to continually sacrifice and not rely on and trust on Jesus and his blood and his blood alone, that they believed it was part of their works. And it speaks of a period of time in the church when one man was given power and authority over the whole shebang. You can add two and two together and decide what church that was. And this is what Thyatira is picturing as a bad time in the church. But were there true believers? Absolutely. The next church is called Sardis. Do you know what that word means? Those escaped. Those people who escaped out from under Thyatira and that domination of the one man being over the whole church. And Sardis was a church that uh, the spirit of God began to work on the people about 1500. It pictures the Reformation with Martin Luther and Tyndale and these guys coming forth and the spirit working again in the church. Philadelphia is the next church. What does it mean? You know, the Rocky movies, brotherly love. This is during now when all the, the spirits moving and the reformation has gone through and there's a revolution and we're having giant uh, spiritual revivals going on around the world. This is what that pictures. And then it talks about the seventh church and that's Laodicea. And that's the church we're in today. And guess what that word means? It means the people speak. And what that means is Laodicea was a place where really hot water came in and it mixed with really cold water and you got this lukewarm, terrible stuff. And Laodicea is a picture of the church that after the period of brotherly love, the church falls into a state where people like to hear themselves uh, tell stories from the pulpit rather than the word of God. And the people speak and people want to hear the speaking that goes on there more than they want to hear the word of God. And God says, that's lukewarm. I want to spit it out of my mouth. Do you trust completely what scripture tells us that Jesus gave us his finished work? Is he the author and finisher of your faith? Or was Joseph Smith? Was more gospel needed? More additions? I mean, how come Jesus didn't speak of temple endowments? How come Jesus didn't tell us about celestial marriage? Instead, he said, there's no marriage in heaven. My friends, there is no worldwide apostasy. The gospel of Jesus Christ that, uh, that Jesus Christ gave the world was never lost. Believers, true and faithful believers have kept it alive and going since his ascension. This is one of the greatest miracles of 
Christianity, that it, it has, in fact, withstood the gates of hell. With that, let's open up the phone lines. As I said, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. First time callers, please. We have Rose in Arizona, Isaac in Indiana, David in Detroit, Michigan. Whoa, Victor in LA, California, all first time callers. We're going to come back. We're gonna run a spot real quick and then we'll take your calls. You are watching Heart of the Matter, a live weekly television program right here from the Mecca of Mormonism. We've been on the air for almost four years now. now we're a tax-exempt corporation, and we survive solely on your financial support. There are two ways that you can uh, help support this ministry financially, through the mail or through the Internet. Now, some people give as they can, and everything is a great blessing to us. We are so grateful for the support people have given over the years. We also invite anyone inclined to join with us in this fruitful ministry by becoming a partner. And this simply means you're in a position to contribute a certain amount annually, which greatly helps us with our planning. Be our friend, become our partner, but we do need your support if you're so inclined of the Lord and you have already given to the church. For more information, call 888-868-HOTM or 888-868-4686. Write to us at 314 South Redwood Road, Salt Lake City, 84104, or get on the internet, www.hotm.tv for more information. God bless you all. Hey, the address for squatters next week after the show is 147 West, 300 South, January 26th. Not the 27th. I got an exclamation point for that. We are going to Rose. I'm not sure. Uh, from Arizona, first time caller. Rose, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Excellent. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. I just wanted to challenge your point that you made the other day about Romney being a great help to Mormonism. You said it would help the missionaries go door to door and be able to say, uh, well, the President of the United States is a Mormon, so right. listen to us. And, that, was and, about, that was about two years ago, but that's okay. Uh, so go ahead. Yeah, well, also you said, well, it's disturbing that he made these temple covenants, and, and so what if he had to choose between the United States and Mormonism? But yeah. the, the thing is, Having Romney as president would throw a great spotlight on Mormonism. It would make it much harder for the leaders to just kind of hide away and say, well, go talk to the BYU people. We don't want to address that question because we don't want to be held to account for anything we say. Yeah, so, you know, it's a really good point, Rose, and I see what you're saying, but they are masters of PR. And there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a phrase that they use in Hollywood, and that's uh, all press is good press. And so I believe yeah. that bromide. And I believe that any press the LDS Church gets is going to be something that gets people to look at it. And they're such good at PR, that I, they're so good at PR that I think that they would take advantage of a Mormon president. Well, yeah, they definitely take advantage of it. I'm not saying it wouldn't be a great advantage in some respects, but also it's, it's sort of like if, if we had two candidates, Mormonism and Christianity side by side. And in a lot of elections, it's great to be the well-known candidate, and it's hard to be the lesser well-known. 
But if both are equally known, then you have the chance to compare them side by side. And I think if you can have the chance to do that, then Christianity comes out ahead. And that they shouldn't be afraid of that. Well, Rose, I would agree with you, except in the last, in the last campaign, we did have a Christian and a Mormon running side by side. We had a guy named Huckabee, and we had a guy named uh, 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 Romney. And, and uh, I'm sorry, but I liked Romney better. So, and I'm a Christian. So in the, in, the, in the arena of PR, I mean, he's a handsome guy, he's rich, he's articulate. Huckabee's out there, you know, beating up airline stewardesses because they don't pack his bags right. I mean, so I don't think that's necessarily true. I think the well, LDS... I'm not saying Romney wouldn't win at all. He might very well win. But I'm talking about an election in people's hearts, not in terms of political campaigns. I see. Hey, really good point, Rose. I appreciate it. Thanks for watching out there in Arizona. Yeah, thank you. Okay, God bless. Bye-bye. Listen, at Grace Lutheran Church, 815 East, 9800 South, this Sunday, the 24th, I'm speaking at 9.30 a.m. I just learned this. So come and hear me rattle on even more. Uh, but Grace Lutheran Church, it'd be a great time. I'm speaking at a class on uh, helping to talk with your LDS family and friends about the Lord. We're going to Isaac in Indiana. Isaac, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, sweet, awesome. Um, hey, well, first, uh, I just wanted to say I really appreciate your ministry. Like, I, like, I think it's a great thing. Thanks, Isaac. Um, but my question was, I'm a Christian, and my friend is a Christian, but her mom and her mom's side of the family are Mormon. And she was kind of raised Mormon, but, like, I mean, I talked to her and all that stuff, and she's born again now, and she's a Christian. But she's been feeling called, especially here lately, to tell her mom and her family that she's not a Mormon, you know, that she's a Christian. But she's really scared, like, she doesn't know how to do it, and she doesn't know what will happen and that kind of thing, you know what I mean? Yeah. How old is she? So, she's only 17. Oh. Yeah, that, is she still live with her mom? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, probably, in my opinion, um, I think that if she exhibits Jesus in her life and in her home and associating with her mom and uh, is able to share that love and talk more about the Lord without telling her, hey, I'm a Christian, but just exhibiting what Jesus taught, then maybe after a while, the mom would be like, wow, you are really into it. And then she can say, well, you know, and the mom might say, what's happened with you? And then she says, well, about two years ago, mom, I, I came to know the Lord. And that might be a better approach than to walk in and say, mom, I'm a Christian and you're a Mormon and, you know, something like that. So you want to keep peace. Jesus is the author of peace. He's the author of love. So you want to go in and make the family stay united rather than die, split it apart. So that would be my recommendation, um, Isaac, is to tell her to go in and to exemplify Jesus the best way possible. Okay. Um, well, just out of curiosity, like, if she happened to tell her mom, like, what would her mom, do you know, I mean, I don't, is it customary for them to, for, like, uh, I'm trying to explain it, for when the parents find out that the kids are LDS, is it customary for them to, like, do any kind of, you know, like kick them out or whatever, anything like that. 
It depends on the family, depends on the parents. There are LDS parents who would be very loving no matter what the children told them. And there are, there are LDS parents who would go ballistic and, and make them go out on their own and, and, and ostracize them. It really, it's like any religion. It depends on the parents and the family. But there will be, I can assure you of this, if she comes out and says she's a Christian and she lives by Christianity and tells her LDS friends and family, I'm Christian, there will be a distancing, at least from the, the friends, the ward, the community of LDS. She will be uh, ultimately pushed out, yeah. Okay, and just one last thing I want to ask. Is there any, like, kind of scripture, like any kind of verse that you know of that might help her when she is facing that kind of thing? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto the own understanding. Trust in Him. Give the whole situation to Him always. Proverbs. Three, okay. five, and seven. Okay. Five and six. Okay. All right, man. Hey, thanks, thanks, Isaac. All right, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. We're going to David in Detroit, Michigan. David, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, um, thank you for having me on. Um, in regards to your comments about the great apostasy, um, I'll try to be brief. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the only confusion that I've seen that comes out of this is from the Restorationists, whether they be Islam, uh, Mormonism, Oneness Pentecostals, Unitarians, and so on and so forth. They are all causing all of this confusion. Yeah. And I can't seem to find anything from the time of the Bible through the time of the church fathers that shows a disconnect with theology. Okay? So you can't say that there was a great apostasy when the only evidence, no, when you have no evidence and you only have your own testimony. And yeah. here's, the, here's the other thing about it. Mormonism and Islam make that same argument that uh, there was a great apostasy the Catholic Church uh, disturbed or some, somehow there was a disturbance of the truth gospel, which just so happens to simply point to this prophet who seems to be the same person that's found the truth. Right. It's like a form of self-angrisement, like an ego gone amok. Yeah. And that's so contrary to how, for example, in Luke, in Mark and John, they don't talk about themselves. Mm -mm. And I would never trust a testimony by someone about themselves calling themselves the greatest. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? I do. And that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. And because, you know, the people who have, we have a lot of information about church history. And you're right. There is nothing in there about this, this uh, theological schism that destroyed the church entirely. You know? And, and, and you also make a great connection between Islam and Mormonism and all the isms. So, mm -hmm. great point, uh, David. Can I, really I just make one more? Yeah. Okay. Um, in Jeremiah 23... Mm -hmm. um, it seems to talk about Mormonism and Islam, but let's just say Mormonism, especially verses 30 through 34. Okay. I'm against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Yeah. Use their tongues to say, he saith, when I didn't say it. <laughs> right. False <laughs> so dreams. Going on, but thank you. Yeah. Yep. That, that's, um, a good, that's a good one. Yeah. So I've got a lot more, but I know you got other callers. So I don't want to hold you guys up there. Okay, hey, I really appreciate you watching. Tell your friends, David. You got it. Thank great you. points. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let me read that to you. It's a great verse. It says, uh, Behold, I am against the prophets, said the Lord, that use their tongues and say, He saith. He says, Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, 
saith the Lord, and do tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. Yet I send them not nor commanded them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord, not profit the people at all. We're waiting for operators to clear the lines. Uh, they're full right now, but keep calling in and uh, trying. We'll get to you. We got an email from uh, Jesse, which is really interesting. He's been watching the show for a while. He really likes everything that's going on with the program, but he does have kind of a problem. He says, so this is my question to you. Is there anything wrong with telling a Mormon based off God's word and the fact that their Jesus is wrong, that they are on a path that leads to hell? He complains because I don't say when a Latter-day Saint calls in and says, am I going to hell? Or I, that I don't say, yes, you are going to hell. He doesn't like this about what I do. Can't we draw a line in the sand and say the LDS, J-Dub, Seventh-day Adventist, Christian scientists, and any other cult or religion that doesn't worship God in spirit and truth is not redeemed and does not worship the one true living God? It's really a good uh, question because when you read the Bible, the Lord's emphatic on what his word is. He's emphatic on what it, it requires, broken heart, contrite spirit, born again. It requires all these things. But there is a difference, and it comes up every now and then, and I just want to explain it really quickly. Uh, this is it. The, um, there's, an, there's epistemological knowledge, and there's ontological knowledge. Ontological knowledge is the makeup of somebody. Right behind the camera is Derek. He's about six foot five. He's about 240, handsome as heck, red hair, goatee, shaking his head right now. That's ontological knowledge. Epistemological knowledge would be, I know Derek's heart. I know exactly what he's thinking right now. I know what his heart is saying to mine right now, and I know him spiritually. Ontological knowledge and epistemological knowledge don't, don't necessarily marry together, okay? The question is, does a person have epistemological knowledge of God? Do they believe in God and have they given their will and their trust to God regardless of their lack of ontological knowledge. For instance, does somebody not know his name is Jesus, but with what they've been given, they epistemologically believe in him? Here's the problem with telling Latter-day Saints, J-dubs, and all the others, you are absolutely going to hell. Many of them may possess an epistemological knowledge of Christ. They may believe in him. They may trust him. They may have been born again through him. But ontologically, they think different things about him. He is a different Jesus to them ontologically. That's because of their religious training. I am of the belief that our gracious God has in place all knowledge and understands where people's hearts are relative to his son, the answer. So I refuse to ever be this person who says, yes, you are going to hell, ever. Plus, we don't know what anybody says on their deathbed. We're going to Anonymous, Anonymous, <laughs> this is new, uh, in Lehigh. Hi, Anonymous. Hi. Why would your parents name you that anyway? Hello? Hello, you're on the air. This is Sean. It is. Hi, I have a few questions here, and then I just want to hang up, okay? Okay. So you can answer them, I want to listen. Okay, I'll try to remember okay. them. Audience, listen. How did the Mormons brush under the rug the DNA versus the Book of Mormon? You know the video? Yep. Uh, what, whatever happened with that, 
And how did they just cover that all up? Well, they can't cover this up. Right. Okay, my next question is, is all the different branches of LDS, like FLDS, okay, all the different polygamy branches that there are around Utah, Right. they each have their own prophet. So how do these LDS, if they have the true church of Jesus Christ, how do they listen to all of these prophets? I mean, it, doesn't that just cause confusion? It does. Two great questions. You, know, you want to hang up? Well, like, can I ask you one more? Okay, three, yeah. Okay, sorry. My son said to me that um, they don't go by the Book of Mormon anymore. They go by the Doctrine and Covenants, and they don't believe in polygamy. Well, isn't polygamy in the Doctrine and Covenants? Hmm. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for calling. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Uh, first question, what was it? DNA. DNA, Book of Mormon. Let me tell you, facts are irrelevant to people who want to believe. It doesn't, the facts are irrelevant. Honest to goodness, you could get a photograph of Brigham Young riding a white buffalo buck naked and screaming, Satan's my master, and they won't care. It, facts do not matter when people want to believe. If you read uh, The True Believer uh, by Eric Hoffer, he tells you how, I mean, it's an ingenious book, but he's an atheist and I don't like that, but it's an ingenious book on the process of true believing. So it doesn't matter. The DNA, they, they spin, they got farms down there and they just spin and come up, well, we don't have to look this, we have that, and they just keep spinning up. Second question was? The prophets, yeah. You know, it's great because we're talking about restoration. We're talking about apostasy. One of the fruits of Mormonism is hundreds and hundreds. We're talking maybe even like 500 offshoot sects that all have um, prophets, have all had polygamy in different ways, have done different type of strange esoteric doctrines out there over the course since Joseph Smith supposedly restored the true church. Branched off of him, about 500 radical different sects. That's the fruit of this uh, restoration of supposedly Christ's church. So yeah, it does bring confusion and there's no justice for it. And the third one is? Doctrine and Covenants 132 teaches polygamy. The Book of Mormon actually is the book that teaches against polygamy. And so uh, you have a problem there with your son's understanding. And they do absolutely still embrace the Book of Mormon. Okay, we're going to Joe in Cedar City. First time caller. Joe, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sean, thanks for taking the call. You're welcome. I'm still laughing at the bucking Brigham Young thing. But um, <laughs> quick question. Uh, being a non-LDS, non-Mormon. Yeah. As a Christian, though, and, and trying to, you know, bring the gospel to them, sometimes a conversation from an LDS person, they'll mention a title that they either have or like a family member has in the church. Being non-LDS, it's like, I have no idea really what those titles mean. And from your experience, because your show's awesome and you're so informative, and I know you're helping a lot of LDS, but you're helping a ton, a ton of Christians Thanks. understand Mormonism, you know? Yeah. Could you take us through, like, okay, you join the church and then go through the titles all the way to the president. And if time permits, like, what do those titles mean? What, what do they do with them? That's a great question. I haven't thought of that, Joe. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Okay, you join the church. You're a member of the church no matter what, when you join, as long as it's over eight. You get baptized, you're a member. If okay. you're, I'm not going to talk about the female titles because they're usually called presidents of their specific group with counselors, okay? But I'm going to okay. talk about the priesthood titles. 
then a young man or even an adult grown man who hasn't had a priesthood gets what's called the Aaronic priesthood. And in that, he first becomes a deacon and uh, then they become a teacher and then they become a priest. All of that falls under the Aaronic priesthood. Actually, the title of bishop is a part of the Aaronic priesthood too. But it's t deacon, teacher, priest. Now they have 12-year-old deacons and they have 14-year-old teachers, and they have 18-year-old priests. This is so their erotic priesthood. Thing? What's that? Does it, is it totally tied into their age? That's how it's Yeah, generated? totally ties into their age. Unless uh, they convert it as an adult, and then they'll put them through the, you're a teacher, deacon, priest really quickly. So <laughs> they really do that. So, wow. um, so that's the order of the Aaronic priesthood. Now, interestingly enough, the priests of the Old Testament, you know, it took a lot to be a priest, but we, they give it to their 18-year-olds who are out partying the night before, you know, blessing the sacrament the next night. But okay, so then you get the Melchizedek priesthood and you become a Melchizedek priest and you become an elder. And then there are different offices within that. You can be at a 70 and you can become then a high priest. So there's elder and high priest in the Melchizedek priesthood. Each of those groups, Melchizedek and Aaronic, have quorums, and there are presidents and counselors of those quorums. My God! So it, it's 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 very it's a it's it's like a corporation. It looks like a flowchart of hierarchy of power, and you can see this kind of laid out. Explaining it, I'm not as articulate as I should be, but that's kind of how it's laid out. Okay. Well, that at least helps to, you know, I'm glad I'm, I DVR the show because I can go back through and... <laughs> oh, awesome. And to take notes. Thanks for watching, Joe. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to Anonymous again. This is in the, from the Midwest, it says, and they're a first-time caller and LDS. Anonymous, you're on the air. Hi, how you doing tonight? I'm doing all right, Anonymous. How are you? I'm doing well. I just wanted to make a, a point. Last week you talked about uh, angels. Yeah. Um, and this week you're talking about apostasy. Mm -hmm. And one thing that uh, has always stuck out to me was in Joseph Smith's history, um, the angel Moroni comes to Joseph Smith and he rewords uh, the prophecies of Malachi, specifically yeah. chapters 3 and 4. Yeah. And as, I, as I'm looking through... Um, through the Book of Mormon, I noticed that uh, Lehi and his family took with him the brass plates, yeah. which contained the law and the prophets up until um, the time they left, included some of uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Yeah. Um, in Third Nephi, chapter 25, um, Jesus is told to convey to them the, the words of Malachi. And what Jesus, the words that Jesus um, gives the Nephites is a word-for-word -word rendering of the words of Malachi. Wow. And so when, it, when we're talking about apostasy and angels, you, you mentioned earlier Galatians 1, 6 through 9, yeah. if we or an angel changes it, you know, we have to talk about apostasy. Yeah. When you look at the angel Moroni changing words that Christ confirmed word-for-word -word in the Book of Mormon, right. where does the apostasy really lie? Wow. Very, very articulate. Haven't thought of that. Exceptional thinking. That's really good. I really appreciate you sharing that. Not a problem. All right, keep, keep going. Keep giving us stuff. Have a good night. All right, you too. Bye-bye. I like guys like that. All right, have a good night. Thanks for listening to me.
We're going to, I got a question here. Why do missionaries say that the book of Revelation should not be changed or added to, but Joseph Smith made all kinds of changes in it? The missionaries don't usually say that the book of Revelation uh, should not be changed or added to. The book of Revelation says at the end, chapter 22, that no one should add or take away from the words of this book. So, uh, and so I, I think there might be some confusion there on, in terms of what Joseph Smith did. Uh, calls, we have Benet. Benet, Benet, you're on Heart of the Matter. I'm doing well, how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, I just wanted to call and um, I wanted to ask, have you stopped sweating yet? Have I what? Stopped sweating yet? I never stopped sweating. Well, because um, I don't know if you remember about a week and a half ago, you were on my sh my radio show. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I was sweating because I was late. Yeah. <laughs> so what's happening? Oh, I'm doing, I'm doing great. Uh, I just wanted to call and publicly thank you for being, uh, for making an appearance on my show. And I just, I had a blast with you. I really did. He's oh, a great guy, you know, I want to tell people, he's a great guy to talk to one-on-one, -on -one, because that's what it felt like to me, is we were just talking one-on-one. -on -one. Well, that was and fun, today. I would today. love to have you back whenever. The name of my show, by the way, is the Exmo Radio Show. It's on Block Talk Radio. Okay. So, little plug for me. <laughs> Excellent. And um, I, just thought, I, I just thought you were super great, and I would love to have you back. Thanks so much, Benet. Thank you. you take care. Thank you for calling. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, I'm not sure what's happening with the calls, but there's a, there's a box of chocolates that you can buy in uh, Europe. I don't know. I didn't tell Kevin we were going to do this. Can, he, can you get close up on that? Okay, on that fries chocolate, I don't know if you can see it. Can we get a little bit closer, Nathan? That's the best we can get? <laughs> You're moving, I'm not. Uh, what this is, is it shows a, a, a kid here, and he's very unhappy. And then he slowly gets happier and happier and happier, Okay. And then what it says is when he's very unhappy, he's in desperation. And then the second picture shows him in pacification because he's got a hold of some fries chocolate. And then there's expectation, he's happier. And then there's acclamation, he's a super happy. And then there's realization because it's fries chocolate and his face is very happy and, and beaming. And there's a guy who did a blog and it's really insightful. He takes this. And he says, in Christianity, that is the process by which you come to know the Lord. You are very unhappy. You're crying and shit. You're, you're broken. You are um, in desperation. And then you begin to be pacified through him. And you have an expectation of his coming in your life. And you have acclamation that he's there. And you have a realization that you're a Christian. But what the, what's really interesting about the guy's point was that he says, it's the, rever the reverse is true within the LDS. If you have a Latter-day Saint share with you, they start off super happy. We're really just so glad that we can share the gospel with you. And if you then question them, they start to go down a little bit. Well, well what do you mean? 
Well, I've never heard of that before. You're just saying that. And then they begin to more and more deteriorate to the point where they're crying and they're saying, why are you picking on me? I, that, you're an anti-Mormon. And so it's a really good point because the reason that is is because the Latter-day Saints ego is wrapped in to them sharing this message. And if you insult it, you are hurting their ego and they take it personally and they call you a name. But Christians, you share the Christian news and someone says, I don't believe that. And you say, I'm really sorry you don't, man. I hope someday you will. Well, you're an idiot for believing that. Well, you know, I do believe it and it's changed my life. I hope someday you will. You don't have this vested interest in your own ego to share it. You're just glad to share it. And if you get rejected, you continue on with that joy. We're going to go quickly to Vicki in Salt Lake City on line three. Last call for the night. Vicki, you're on Heart of the Matter. All right. You're on the air, Vicki. Who is this? Vicki? Yeah. You're on the air. Okay, well, I'm not talking to Sean, though, right? You are. Oh, wow, okay. Anyway, um, okay, a couple of weeks ago, um, you were talking to a, a I used to date guy. a girl like this. Hello? Go, go ahead. Okay, you were talking to a Mormon guy about um, the fall of man, and then you said something about if there were no fall of man, there'd be no need for Jesus Christ. Can you expl please explain that, and I'll just hang up and watch you on the air. Okay, Vicki, thank you. Okay, bye. Uh, I, that was really a mistake I made <clears throat> when I said there'd be no need for Jesus Christ if there was no fall. Jesus Christ has always existed. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's uncreated, so he's always been so. And I think my words were there would be no Jesus Christ, and I was wrong in that. Someone, in fact, corrected me on that. There has always been a Jesus Christ. There always would be. Uh, but uh, if there was no fall, there would be no need for uh, Christ to become incarnate take upon a body, suffer for sin, etc. And that's what I meant by that. Um, let's go to Wendy in West Jordan really quickly. Wendy, I'm sorry you only have one minute. Hey, Sean, this is Wendy. I just wanted to let you know, I have a neighbor down the street who's trying to use a passage in the Bible to convert people saying that Joseph Smith is in the Bible, and it's proven it's Ezekiel 37, 16, and 17. He's using the name Joseph in there. Um, Oh saying it means, you know, the words are passing the stick, meaning it's Joseph Smith. Okay. Can you elaborate on that? I can, but I can't do it now because we only have 50 seconds. Okay. But next week, give me the reference again, Ezekiel what? It's Ezekiel 37, 16, 17, and this is what they're using to convert people, telling that Joseph Smith is in the Bible. And I just, I want you to elaborate on it. Unbelievable. We'll, we'll open up next week with that, Wendy. Thank you so much. All right, Sean, I love you, and I love what you're doing. You won't believe how much you're changing the world out here. Oh, praise God. Thank you. Thanks. We'll Bye, Wendy. Bye-bye. Hey, uh, join us next week, next Tuesday, the 26th, here for our 200th show. It's a big party. We hope we fill the studio. And then afterwards, we're going to all caravan. We're going to have a pioneer trek over to Squatter's Pub. And we're going to go in there. And I won't be pubbing the beer, but I will be drinking my Diet Coke with you. And we'll have a great time remembering all the four years that we've been around 200 shows. God bless you. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.